Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. G'day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Australian Military History Podcast. Before we kick on, don't forget to check out the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com for any associated maps and photos, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram for interesting little bits and pieces. And drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail if you wish to suggest a topic for a future episode, or if you just want to say hello. And now we're away. It's often said, you don't win a battle until you've got a man in a green suit standing on a piece of ground formerly held by another man in a different green suit. And while this is largely true, it does overlook the need for an efficient and effective support system to get that man in a green suit to that spot of ground. Every war has advancements in the support and logistics available to the frontline troops. At the beginning of World War I, horses and very early motor vehicles were the method of moving men and material around, and direct fire support usually came from artillery hundreds of yards to the rear. Extraction of the wounded from the battlefield fell to the courageous stretcher bearers, and battlefield intelligence was, more often than not, delivered by runners. In World War II, the basics hadn't changed that much. Machines had replaced horses, and some troop and supply movement was handled by air. The extraction of wounded still fell to stretcher bearers, but intel and communication between the front line and command was becoming a bit more sophisticated, and if the terrain and conditions permitted, direct fire support could be brought in from the air. But by the Vietnam War, things had changed significantly. Those magnificent men in their flying machines had not only moved the goalposts, they had taken them to a whole different field. Supply could be, and on some notable occasions was, delivered right to the troops in the middle of the combat zone. Wounded could be plucked from the battlefield and in surgery within half an hour of being hit, and the mountain of stores required to keep an army in the field could be delivered from depots in Australia in a matter of days. Added to that, the firepower that could be brought to bear, with accuracy, could sometimes make the difference between failure and success. So without any further ado, let's get into the story of the Royal Australian Air Force in Vietnam. The Australian involvement in Vietnam really began to kick off in 1964, when the government announced it was raising its commitment to the support of South Vietnam, from a handful of specialised advisors to the commitment of an infantry battalion and support elements. Part of that support was six twin-engine transport aircraft from the RAAF, known as Caribous. The deployment of these aircraft meant that apart from the US, Australia was the first country to send aircraft into the war zone. The Caribou were in the process of being flown from Canada to Australia. They briefly stopped over at Butterworth Airfield in Malaysia, which you will no doubt remember from our episode on the Malayan Emergency. It was during the stopover at Butterworth that the decision to commit air assets to Vietnam was made and the RAAF Transport Flight Vietnam, known as the RTFV, was officially formed on the 21st of July 1964. The first three caribous landed at Bung Tau on the 8th of August 1964, with another three arriving in late August and one more in May of 1965. The conditions were somewhat, shall we say, rudimentary when the RTFV first lobbed at Vung Tau. Squadron leader Sugden said of the conditions, quote, Living conditions at first were unbelievably crude and all ranks moved off base into a villa at our own expense. 
The US Army commander did not like this because he had given us at least equal to what his own boys had, but I'm afraid that the treatment of the GI was like something out of last century. End quote. Surely it couldn't be that bad, you ask. After all, he did say it was of an acceptable standard to the Americans. Squadron leader Sugden goes on to describe the state of the facilities provided. Quote, on base, we had been split up into different billets, none of which were much chop. The airman's hut was the worst and was located just a few feet from an open sewer system which stank beyond belief. In addition, there was a generator alongside their hut which went flat out night and day. There were only 12 toilets on base for over 1,200 men, and most of them were blocked. End quote. Hmm, a five-star resort it was not. And I assume it was the toilets that were blocked, not the 1,200 men. And if the facilities were not crook enough, requests for equipment from Australia were knocked back as they weren't listed on the squadron's equipment establishment list, basically a list of things in some bureaucrat's office which says what the squadron owns or needs. So apparently, if the list says they don't need it, then they don't get it, regardless of what the blokes on the ground actually think. Anyone who has ever spent a moment in the military will recognise this situation as snafu. Now, this is a family-friendly podcast, so I shall use the sanitised version of what snafu means, in case you don't know. Snafu, situation normal, all fluffed up. Except, obviously, the Defence Force doesn't say fluffed. So, needless to say, the RTFE's first few months in Vietnam were not comfortable. But they had a job to do, and comfortable or not, they got on with it. Theirs was a transport squadron, and so they set about transporting stuff. It would be easy to assume that, as the enemy didn't possess any form of air-to-air capability, the life of a transport pilot would be pretty cushy. And, to a point, you'd be right. Up in the air at cruising altitude, pretty safe. On the ground, surrounded by ground defence personnel, also pretty safe. But the bit between cruising altitude and the ground could be a different matter. The Americans and their South Vietnamese protégés would come into Vung Tau with long approaches, inching lower and lower as they came in. The area surrounding Vung Tau, particularly in those early stages, was teeming with North Vietnamese and Viet Cong soldiers. So during these long approaches, the aircraft were subjected to ground fire until they were pretty much in the immediate vicinity of the airfield. Squadron leader Sugden wasn't going to have a bar of this, and so he devised a strategy to nullify the threat from the ground. The approaching aircraft would maintain an altitude of 3,000 feet, beyond effective ground fire range, until it was basically over the airfield. Then they would begin an approach pattern, basically staying as close to the airfield's footprint as possible until they touched down without being shot at. The Americans' refusal to do any such thing worked in the Australians' favour. Of course, the Vietnamese were still being presented with nice juicy targets a fair distance from the Allied base. They didn't feel the need to come in closer and risk being attacked by the garrison. This left the surrounding area basically clear, which enabled the Australian tactic. Occasionally, though, poor weather would sometimes necessitate lower-level flying, but for the most part, the squadron's process was sound. The efficiency of the RTFV was noted by the American commander in Vietnam, General Westmoreland. He was frustrated that the American squadrons were unable to operate at the same level as the Australians, and so he lodged a formal request to the Australian government in May 1966 for another squadron of Australians. He wanted 12 more caribous and the aircrew to fly them, but he was knocked back, not through any ill feeling towards the general or a lack of commitment to the cause. It was simply because we didn't have them. On 24th of May 1968, Flight Officer Goodsell was piloting his caribou in the Mekong Delta. Poor weather reduced visibility, and Gussel was forced to fly below the cloud cover. In many other areas of Vietnam, this wouldn't have been too much of a problem. The thick jungle would have provided a degree of cover from ground-based fire. 
But the area which Goodsall was flying over wasn't so densely vegetated, and having a nice big slow-moving target well within their range was too much for the communist troops to resist. They opened fire and one bullet managed to penetrate the left side of the cockpit, hit the nose wheel mechanism and send bits and pieces of shrapnel into the cabin. Goodsall was hit in the head and was knocked unconscious. The co-pilot took control of the plane and returned to base while the loadmasters dressed Goodsall's wounds. It all worked out okay in the end. The aircraft landed without incident and despite having a headache for a couple of days, Goodsall was able to return to duty shortly thereafter and completed his tour of duty. As unnerving as ground fire undoubtedly was, the greatest threat were the rough airstrips they were sometimes required to land on to deliver supplies to the more remote areas of the fighting. On 18th November 1964, Flying Officer Brian Hammond was delivering ammunition and other supplies to a base at RO near the Lowishan border. The weather prohibited the planned airdrop, and so Hammond decided to land. In hindsight, he'd probably rethink this option. With his windscreen covered in mud during the landing, he wasn't able to see that he was no longer heading straight down the runway. He ploughed into the surrounding jungle, destroying the plane, but he and the crew survived, and the supplies were delivered. So, technically, they had completed the task assigned to them. These two incidents, among others, show that this whole transport squadron thing wasn't always the safe and cushy job that it would seem to be. In fact, during the course of the squadron's war, 20 aircraft were hit by ground fire, two crash-landed, and one was destroyed by mortar fire while on the ground. I was listening to a podcast called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin a while ago, and in particular, a series on World War I titled Blueprint to Armageddon. If you get a chance, listen to it. Dan really can do a good podcast. But the reason I bring this up is, during the first episode of that series, he tells a story of when he were a young lad, and he was speaking to an Air Force veteran who lived down the street. He asked the vet who were the bravest soldiers he'd ever met, thinking it would be the Marines or Navy SEALs or some American unit. But the veteran said, Australians, because no matter how tough things were, no matter the danger or the discomfort, the Aussies would always be laughing. And the 35th Squadron was no exception to this rule, as they liked to show on numerous occasions. One such occasion, the squadron was carrying a group of South Vietnamese when the caribou blew through some very rough weather. Not being experienced flyers, many of the passengers began to get a bit green around the gills. It was while the passengers were trying to hold on to their lunch that the pilot turned to his loadmaster, known as Lurch, motioning urgently for an airsick bag. The pilot grabbed the proffered bag, spun hastily to his front and made all the appropriate noises while filling the bag with the contents of a freshly opened fruit salad tin. When all was safely contained in the bag, the pilot returned the bag to Lurch, who looked inside and then started picking out the contents and eating them in front of the passengers. Needless to say, many more sick bags were quickly filled. Nicely played, gentlemen. That is a level of bastardry the Army would be proud of. On 1st of June 1966, the RTFE became known as the 35th Squadron Royal Australian Air Force. Its unit badge, apart from the Royal Crown and the usual sundries, showed a globe with a wallaby standing in front. This, plus the fact that their radio call sign was Wallaby, earned the 35th Squadron the nickname Wallaby Airlines, a tag they proudly carried throughout the remainder of the war. At this point, I'd like to point out that I've seen references to either or both of these things being the sole or joint reason behind the name. So if you feel strongly one way or the other, please put down the pitchforks and torches. In 1971, as the Vietnam War was winding down, other air assets were removed, leaving Wallaby Airlines the only Australian squadron still in country. On the 19th of February 1972, the last four caribous took off from Vang Tau on their way to Australia, officially ending the RAAF role in Vietnam. During its seven and a half years in Vietnam, Wallaby Airlines flew nearly 80,000 sorties, 
totaling around 47,000 hours of flying time, carrying 677,000 passengers, 36 million kilos of freight, including livestock, and 5 million kilos of mail. It set standards of flying, maintenance and safety no other similar squadron could reach and received a number of commendations from the US Air Force. But, as usual, recognition from the esteemed Australian politicians and media at the time, and since, has been found wanting. The 35th Squadron was the first RAAF squadron in Vietnam, but it was followed closely by 9 Squadron on 3rd of May 1966. Well, the first few blokes of the squadron arrived on that date to make arrangements for the rest of the equipment, the most important of which was the squadron's helicopters. They arrived via the HMAS Sydney on 6th of June and were flown to Vung Tau and then onto Nui Dat. Now, as anyone who has even a passing knowledge of the Vietnam War knows, Vietnam was characterised by the helicopters. Their versatility, manoeuvrability and speed made them perfect for all sorts of roles. Their primary role in the Western world's imagination is the rapid movement of troops from base camps to insertion points anywhere in South Vietnam. But they could also be used for dropping leaflets over enemy territory and what I always feel is a pretty pointless attempt to convince them to defect. They could also be fitted with boom arms to allow for aerial spraying to control mosquitoes or to destroy food crops which the Viet Cong relied on to sustain its troops. Operations for 9th Squadron began the day after they arrived when 5 RAR requested an urgent ammunition resupply. Although the squadron wasn't exactly expecting to kick off their war so quickly after arrival, knocking back their first mission because they weren't ready wouldn't have been a good look. So off they went. Two of the helicopters flew out to 5 RAR's position, delivered their much-needed ammunition and returned to Vung Tau without incident. It was the start of what would become six years of combat flying in Vietnam. The first real taste of combat occurred on the 10th of July. A special air service, SAS Patrol, was involved in a contact with the Viet Cong. The SAS requested a hot extraction. In case you couldn't guess, a hot extraction is where the helicopters were to fly into a position and pick up troops who were actively engaged with the enemy. Two Iroquois headed off to the pickup site and while descending to the landing zone, the helicopters came under fire. The door gunners opened up and kept the VC busy while the SAS made their way to the aircraft and climbed aboard. The helicopters then took off and headed for home, having sustained no damage during the operation. They were at it again on the 25th of July. 6 RAR was taking part in Operation Hobart, and during the fighting had suffered 22 casualties. Five of 9 Squadron's Iroquois took to the air to evacuate the casualties. This kind of mission was known as a dust-off. Once again, the VC tried to interfere, as you'd expect. Four aircraft descended, while the 5th remained airborne to maintain covering fire. Once again, the mission was completed without damage. It was this kind of rapid extraction which gave wounded soldiers a much better chance of survival. In World War II, 4.5% of soldiers who made it back to hospital died. In Vietnam, thanks largely to the rapid extraction and skilled first aid received on board, only 2.6% of those who made it to hospital didn't survive. That's not a bad improvement. But it wasn't only troops who benefited from the presence of 9 Squadron. Early on in their tour, Flight Lieutenant Hindley and his crew evacuated a badly wounded girl from Ben Gia village and delivered her to medical facilities. It wasn't long before 9 Squadron was involved in the thick things again. Just two months after the helicopters arrived, D Company of 6 RAR was heavily engaged at the Battle of Long Tan, which no doubt you'll remember from a previous episode. For those who aren't aware of the battle and who hadn't tuned into that episode, I'll just give a quick rundown of the situation because this episode is on the RAAF, not 6 RAR. But to get a full appreciation of what a couple of 9 Squadron pilots are about to do, you need to know what's happening on the ground. So, a bare bones rundown of the Battle of Long Tan, and I apologise for the oversimplification. 
On the night of the 16th, 17th of August 1966, the first Australian Task Force base came under a mortar attack from Communist forces. The following day, Bravo Company was sent out to locate the mortar position and to see if they could find any enemy troops. They found the mortar location with a bit of blood, suggesting the retaliatory bombardment had some success. They dug in for the night on the 17th and 18th and made no contacts. On the 18th, Delta Company was sent to relieve Bravo. After the relief, Major Harry Smith ordered 11 platoons to follow a path believed to have been used by the Vietnamese to withdraw their wounded. Shortly after entering the Longtown River Plantation, all hell broke loose and 11 platoon was ambushed. Long story short, this began an intense battle where Delta Company, numbering about 120 men, were attacked by an enemy force estimated at anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000. So, you know, outnumbered by at least 10 to 1 and surrounded. The only real mistake the Communists made with the ambush was they sprung it too close to the task force base, meaning artillery from the New Zealanders could provide heavy fire support to the encircled Australians. Credit where it's due. Without that support from the Kiwis, Delta Company would have been destroyed. But even with that support, it was tough going, and after a couple of hours, ammunition began to run low. Not an ideal situation when you cut off and the enemy is still launching mass charges against you. Major Smith requested a resupply. His CO back at the base basically said no, because he wasn't going to run the risk of sending choppers into that kind of danger. Quite apart from the massive enemy presence that would take great delight in shooting down such a lovely target, by this stage the whole area was being swamped by a monsoonal deluge, making low-level flight, even without enemy fire, exceedingly dangerous. And this is when Nine Squadron forever earned themselves the admiration of every soldier who has ever heard of them. Despite orders prohibiting them from going to Delta Company's aid, Flight Lieutenants Cliff Dolly and Frank Riley loaded up their two UH-18 Iroquois with ammunition and headed off to the battle zone. Navigation wasn't an issue, just point the nose of the chopper towards the smoke rising out of the rubber plantation. As they approached, they were subjected to ground fire, which put a few extra holes in the aircraft, but they stayed aloft and were soon over the target area. Red smoke thrown by the ground troops showed where the drop was to be made. Obviously, the helicopters were never going to be able to land, and so they did the next best thing. In turn, they each tilted onto their sides, and 6 RAR RSM, Warrant Officer Class 1 George Chin on one chopper, and the admin company commander, Major Owen O'Brien, in the other, pushed the crates containing the ammunition out the door. Each of the crates had been wrapped in blankets, which were intended for use on the wounded men. Now, with the ammunition supplied and distributed, Delta Company could continue the fight, and they managed to hold out for another couple of hours until the armoured personnel carriers arrived with reinforcements and the communist forces melted away. Most of the credit for the successful outcome of the battle must go to Delta Company, but certainly without the actions of the nine squadron lads, communists would have destroyed the Australians. Defying orders and flying into excessive danger is usually a pretty good way of endearing yourself to military types, and Dolly and Riley's efforts showed the blows on the ground that no matter how tough things were, they could rely on the night. After the battle, the squadron continued their support by retrieving the wounded well into the night, guided by nothing more than the lights shining through the open hatches of the circled armoured personnel carriers. The pilots picked up many a wounded soldier from the battlefield and delivered them to hospital, no doubt saving many lives. It's often pointed out that the helicopters save lives by reducing the time it took to get a wounded soldier to hospital, and that is true. But an often overlooked factor is the difference that the mode of transport has. In previous wars, a wounded soldier would be picked up from the field, carried on a stretcher, being bumped and tossed around. Then, if they were lucky, into the back of an ambulance, which would then bounce its way over potholed roads, weaving in and out of traffic, to eventually deliver the bloke to hospital. All that bouncing and jarring played havoc on damaged organs, shattered bones, and hastily staunched bleeding. Sometimes the extra damage was all it took to finish off the bloke. By comparison, once they were actually on a helicopter, it was a pretty smooth ride 
meaning that the injuries they had when arriving at the hospital were no more serious than when they had left battlefield. It has to have made a huge difference. 9th Squadron suffered their first casualties of the war on the 18th of October. Iroquois number A2-1018 was putting down in a small clearing when she struck trees and caught a light. Sergeant Buttress, despite suffering burns to his head and arms, rescued the injured crew and pilot. Another chopper rushed in and flew all the injured men to hospital. A2-1018 was a total loss. During the early years of the conflict, heavy fire support for the Australians was provided by US units, when they could spare them. This is obviously not a great arrangement, particularly when the Australians began planning and conducting their own operations, independent of the Americans. 9 Squadron made repeated requests to be partially equipped with gunships, modified helicopters equipped with miniguns and all sorts of other toys. It wasn't until March 1969 that approval was given for the purchase of four modification packages. But this doesn't mean that 9 Squadron didn't have any gunships until that time. They actually, uh, shall we say, acquired one for themselves in July of 1968. An enterprising young lad by the name of Flight Lieutenant Diro went on a bit of a scrounge from Vang Tao to Vinh Long, Dong Tam and Phu Loi. He took with him a substantial amount of Victoria Bitter. That's a fine Aussie beer for the international listeners, and some soft drinks. By the time he returned to Vung Tao, the beer and soft drinks had been exchanged for some rocket pods and miniguns, which he then used to convert his Iroquois into the squadron's first gunship. They always reckon one of the most important skills a soldier can have is scrounging. After this fine effort, who am I to argue? The Australian gunships were known as bush rangers, and four were assigned to nine squadron, grouped into a separate flight to the rest of the transport craft. They officially commenced operations on 11th of April 1969, usually working in pairs designated as light fire teams. But if two wouldn't do the job, then a third or even all four could be assigned to a particular action. Now, any time a new piece of equipment or tactic comes into action, those first few to use them will have to iron out the few wrinkles. And this was the case with the Bush Ranger crews. Unfortunately, one of their early missions almost ended in disaster. Flying low, about 25 kilometres from Vung Tower, the crew located a group of soldiers in a clearing. Believing them to be enemy troops, the door gunners opened up with heavy fire and hit a number of enemy troops. It was only when the pilot came round to hit the area with miniguns and rockets when he saw smoke from a smoke grenade thrown by the men on the ground. The troops were of 6 RAR, who were in the process of preparing an ambush when they were ambushed themselves by the bushrangers. Four soldiers were wounded, but had they been a bit slower in getting the smoke out, it could have been much worse if the rockets and miniguns were added to the incident. Procedures were quickly put in place to ensure that the bushranger pilots knew who was in the area before they took off and similar incidents were avoided in the future. As painful as it is to admit, it was actually a Kiwi who led one of the more successful missions on 9th of May 1969. Flight Officer TK Butler of the Royal New Zealand Air Force was flying in support of a South Vietnamese Army battalion which was in strife after coming into contact with a large enemy force. Butler led the other bushranger of his light fire team to the scene and was immediately greeted with intense fire from the ground. His bushranger was hit almost immediately, but stayed in the air. Butler called in a third bushranger, and the three helicopters made repeated attacks against the enemy until they broke contact. The South Vietnamese troops later said that the three bushrangers had killed at least seven enemy troops, and played a large part in causing the enemy to break contact. Can we just take a moment here, as we mentioned the Royal New Zealand Air Force, to appreciate the fact that the emblem of their air force is a kiwi, which is a flightless bird. Gotta love that New Zealand sense of humour. Over the course of the time in Vietnam, 9 Squadron faced many perilous situations and showed amazing courage and dedication to their work. The following incident 
is just an example of the risks those crews faced on a regular basis and what could happen if it all went south. In the afternoon of 17th of April, a request was received for an urgent dust-off for a seriously wounded South Vietnamese soldier. Both legs had been blown off by a landmine, and without immediate extraction, the man would certainly die. Flying officer Mike Castles and his crew immediately headed to the Long High Hills with a bushranger providing an armed escort. The area in which the soldier had been wounded was heavily vegetated and there was nowhere to land the Iroquois. It was decided that the soldier would be strapped to the stretcher and winched up. The enemy troops had other ideas and opened fire on Butler, hitting the helicopter numerous times. But, ignoring the fire, the rescue operation continued. Corporal R.A. Stevens started winching while the door gunners, Roy Zegers, tried to suppress the enemy fire. The enemy fire continued, and the Iroquois was hit again. Then they heard the sound which no helicopter crew wants to hear. Silence. The engine had stopped, and they were going down. The poor bugger on the stretcher, with no legs, saw that he was directly under this big lump of steel, and dragged himself away as fast as he could. The ground beneath was strewn with boulders, so it wasn't going to be a soft landing. As it hit, debris was sent all over the battlefield. One American and one Australian advisor who were fighting alongside the South Vietnamese troops were killed by debris. The two pilots and LAC Zeggers got themselves clear of the burning wreck, but the medical orderly was pinned in the wreckage and Corporal Stevens remained to try and free him. But it was hopeless and eventually the flames forced him out. As he got clear, the ammunition and fuel exploded. Stevens found the other survivors sheltering among the boulders with a firefight still going on around them. Flying officer Tony Ford had severe burns to his face and hands and so Stevens dressed the burns, with the occasional bullet hitting the rock they were sheltering behind. They stayed in that position until another rescue chopper arrived and managed to winch all the dead and wounded out and flew to the Army Hospital at Bung Tau. On 8th of December 1971, 9th Squadron was withdrawn from duty in Vietnam with their Iroquois loaded on HMAS Sydney for the journey home. Prior to their departure, President Thieu, the leader of South Vietnam, came on board to personally thank the squadron for the efforts. The squadron lost seven Iroquois helicopters during their deployment, with six members killed. The other main RAAF squadron operating in Vietnam was two squadron flying Canberra bombers. The Americans called the Canberra a B-57, maybe because Canberra was too hard to spell. Anyway, the Canberra bomber was the only tactical bombing aircraft in Vietnam which bombed visually from straight level flight. The other bombers, used by the US Air Force, were dive bombers or level bombers using radar for aiming. The Canberras could fly low below cloud level and acquire their targets, whereas if the cloud was low, the dive bombers were ineffective as they couldn't identify their targets from above the clouds and didn't have sufficient time to lock on when they emerged from the cloud bank. The radar aiming system didn't have any issues with cloud, but it's a bit difficult to locate small ground targets via radar, and so the Canberra was really the only bomber which could provide direct, accurate support in most weather conditions. At the outbreak of the war, 2 Squadron was based at Butterworth Airfield in Malaysia. On 19th of April 1967, they deployed to South Vietnam to form part of the US 35th Tactical Fighter Wing at Phan Rang Base, 269 kilometres north of Saigon. They would average eight sorties per day, seven days a week, across all of South Vietnam. By 1971, they would fly just a shade under 20,000 sorties. Their missions over the first few months were mostly combat sky spot missions. These were missions flown at night and the aircraft were guided to a particular location by ground radar and told when to drop their bombs. These missions were reasonably effective, but it didn't make full use of the capabilities of the aircraft, nor the crews. But in September 1967, the squadron began what would become its bread and butter, low-level daylight bombing. They had performed these kinds of operations in Malaya during the insurgency, and performed well, 
but they really honed their skills in Vietnam to a point where two squadron regularly outperformed all other units in the 35th Tactical Fighter Wing. Their tactics were to use forward air controllers, FACs, to mark the area with smoke and the bombers would fly in at low altitude and unload. They achieved accuracy of about 45 metres. Now, on first gaze, it would appear a bit loose. I mean, 45 metres is 5 metres short of your standard Olympic swimming pool. But when you break down what is actually happening, you wonder how they could regularly manage to get even that close. A bombing run was usually conducted at about 350 knots. That's about 650 kilometres per hour, or 420 miles in the old money. That's 180 metres per second. In that time, the crew has to identify the smoke, adjust their course accordingly, aim their bomb sights, and let the bombs go at sometimes ridiculously low altitudes, probably while being shot at. Full points to the lads, I reckon. On some occasions, they'd come in as low as 800 feet, just under 250 metres. At that altitude, as soon as the payload was on its way, the pilot would have to pull up hard to get out of the way of the fragmentation from the blast. Even then, they didn't always escape unscathed. Many of the aircraft would come back with a few extra holes, and some navigators received some minor injuries from time to time. But, always striving for better, the 45 metre accuracy was eventually reduced to about 20 metres by the time the squadron left Vietnam. The squadron only flew about 5% of the wing's missions, but is officially accredited with inflicting 16% of the bomb damage. Just another example of Aussies punching above their weight. Two squadrons' ammunition at the commencement of the war were old World War II stock, of either 10 by 500 pounds or 6 by 1,000 pound bombs. They exhausted that stock in 15 months, and from then on they carried the US Air Force M117 bombs, four in the bomb bay and two on the wingtips. Their success only increased with these new, better bombs. The aircraft and crew of the bombers were only formed part of any squadron. Someone has to keep those planes serviceable and ready for work. Repairs to damage and just the everyday maintenance required to keep these things in the air meant that on the ground the squadron's maintenance crews worked two 12-hour shifts, meaning the workshops were operating 24 hours a day. The result was a 97% serviceability rate. It's a big credit to the greasers, men after my own heart. The squadron carried out its day-to-day operations almost routinely, but when the need arose, they threw themselves in some of the most desperate fights in the war. When the North Vietnamese launched their attack on the American Marine base at Khe Sanh, two squadrons joined the rest of the 35th Wing in Operation Niagara, the air defence of Khe Sanh. On the first day, nearly 600 tactical sorties were flown by the wing, with two squadron in the thick of it. The Canberra's carried out day and night operations, usually in pairs. The US Air Force FACs coordinated the missions, holding 30 to 40 aircraft in holding patterns at 20 to 25,000 feet. You don't have to be an air control expert to know just how dangerous it was to keep that number of planes circulating in a comparatively tight space, but the defence was conducted without any serious incident. It wasn't until November 1970 that the first two-squadron Canberra was lost. During a skyspot mission over the Da Nang area, the aircraft went down, with no trace of the crew or the plane ever found. It has been assumed it was brought down by a surface-to-air SA-2 missile. A second Canberra was lost in March 1971 over the Khe area, where the crew were able to bail out and were picked up the following day. They confirmed they had been hit with an SA-2 missile. Two Squadron flew its last mission on 31st of May 1971 in support of the US 101st Airborne Division in the Ayshore Valley and on 4th of June they departed Phan Rang and arrived in Ambly the following day. The squadron had been on continuous overseas deployment for 13 years since it was first sent to Malaya in 1958. In Vietnam they suffered the loss of five squadron members. Two Squadron was the most highly decorated RAAF squadron in Vietnam. 
So that's the Air Base Squadrons, but it's important to keep in mind that it wasn't only pilots and crew who made up the RAAF presence in Vietnam. Fancy aircraft are all well and good, but if they don't have somewhere nice and smooth and straight to take off and land, then they're not much good to anyone. The No. 5 Airfield Construction Squadron maintained the airfields at Vung Tau and Phan Rang. RAAF Air Defence Guards provided security for the airfields and were sometimes deployed as door gunners for 9 Squadron. And, as mentioned a moment ago, forward air controls worked hand-in-glove with 2 Squadron to pinpoint targets. The RAAF was also responsible for the medical evacuation of sick and wounded troops. Flying in C-130 Hercules, the wounded men were flown back to Australia with the RAAF nursing service providing a high level of care. More than 100 RAAF nurses served during the Vietnam War. In addition to their medical training, they were also instructed in survival training in the event of their aircraft going down in the jungle or over the ocean. But their main concern was always for their patients, 3,100 of whom came home from Vietnam aboard these flights. So by 1974, the RAAF was out of Vietnam. But then came 1975. The North Vietnamese offensive to seize all of South Vietnam was launched. The South Vietnamese government pleaded for assistance. In response, eight Hercules were dispatched from Richmond in Sydney and two Dakotas from Butterworth in Malaya. With the situation on the ground deteriorating fast, two of the Hercules flew into Phan Rang to rescue as many refugees as possible. Despite a salvo of rockets landing close to one of the aircraft, a total of 1,500 refugees were safely evacuated. And that brings us to the last action of the RAAF in that war. A farcical situation which highlights not just the fantasy land some people in high positions live in, but also the stoic self-sacrificing nature of military types and their commitment to their mates. This account is taken from Paul Ham's book, Vietnam, the Australian War. If you want a thorough, no BS account of Australian involvement in Vietnam, then I can't recommend this one highly enough. The background to this incident is the fall of Saigon. The North Vietnamese launched their final massive offensive in 1975 and swept down through South Vietnam and with Saigon now under threat, panic spread throughout the city. RWF crews in Richmond and at Butterworth in Malaya were called to action to assist with the evacuation of Australian officials and any refugees they could get away. In the midst of all this confusion, four RAAF Air Defence Guards, Mick Sheehan, Trevor Nye, John Hanson and Ian Dana, were assigned to protect the embassy staff in Saigon. They were to provide escorts for all Australian vehicle movement to and from the airport, search all personnel prior to embarkation and keep any undesirables off the plane. And on top of that, they were the personal bodyguard of the ambassador, Geoffrey Price. Their only weapons available for carrying out all of this dangerous activity was one pistol each. Now, obviously, the road between the embassy and the airport was choked with Vietnamese citizens trying their best to get out of the country. Many offered money, some offered sex, and one wealthy businessman offered Mick Sheehan $20,000 to marry his daughter and get her out of there. Price reckoned it was a good idea. Sheehan, having more integrity than the ambassador, declined. South Vietnamese soldiers often threatened the Australians if they didn't give them a spot on the plane, with Sheehan at one point being woken up one night with two soldiers dragging him out of bed at gunpoint saying that if they can't go, neither can he. They pulled the trigger. The gun was empty and they walked away laughing. So, you know, things were somewhat tense throughout this time. On 25th of April, yes, Anzac Day, the ambassador and his entourage left the embassy for the last time, but the Vietnamese staff were left behind. To Price's credit, he did try to attain visas for 55 staff, but PM Gough Whitlam blocked approval. Turns out old Gough was a bit of a fan of the North, calling South Vietnam's military leadership war criminals. Politicians, eh? Prior to Price boarding the Hercules, the four air defence guards had to load up the aircraft with all the important objects of state. 
you know, paintings, sculptures, silk, Persian carpets, a Mercedes-Benz, and a menagerie of birds, dogs, and other animals. With everything safely loaded, the ambassador ordered the four guards to prevent any Vietnamese person from boarding the plane, with force if needed. It was left to these four men to break it to the embassy staff that they were essentially being abandoned. Obviously, that's not the sort of thing a high-ranking diplomat should sully themselves with. But then came the kicker. After loading all the ambassador's important objects, there was no room left for Sheehan, Nye, Hanson and Dana. They were told to remain behind, on the tarmac. Yep, rather than throw out a few inanimate objects, Price threw out four members of the RAAF, the four members who had kept him safe throughout the whole emergency. The flight officer, Captain John Stone, objected strongly, but Price said that he was in command of this operation and those men are staying behind. Some journalists offered their seats, but the men wouldn't hear of it, and so Price abandoned four Australian Defence Force members to their fate rather than give up some art. Surely that's got to rate as the biggest personal act of bastardry committed by an Australian official ever. Unbelievable. So, with their only means of getting home, scooting off down the runway, the men sat on their bags with four pistols and four rounds each, planning how they were going to get out of this one. They decided to try and look like tourists, and if they saw North Vietnamese soldiers, they'd try and head into the scrub and evade them. Fortunately, it didn't take too long for word of this event to travel around the RAAF, and a Hercules quickly diverted from Indonesia and landed, at great risk, to pick up their abandoned colleagues, and they all returned home safely. So with that almost surreal event, our coverage of the Royal Australian Air Force in Vietnam comes to an end. Their contribution to Australian efforts throughout the war often goes largely unmentioned, but whether it's the provision of all the vital supplies and letters home, the direct fire support to heavily engaged troops, medical evacuation of seriously wounded soldiers, men on the ground could always count on the men in the air in their time of need. Full credit to the Flyboys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.